Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you, man. How you doing? I'm good. I've got some freshly brewed coffee here and I'm ready for some SFA. Now, what's that? The Scottish Football Association? No, no. Superb football analysis. Lovely. I was going to say <laughs> serious football analysis, but that would be a complete misnomer when it comes to this show. SFA. Yeah, I was thinking, what? didn't we win an SFA award once upon a time? That was the FSA award. Of course. Yes. Of course. Yes. But we could also Football win serious an award. Yeah, we could win an award for SFA um, <laughs> anytime. Sweet fuckle. <laughs> yeah, there are thereabouts. But look, we're heading into uh, the Christmas period, and Arsenal are top of the table after. A very good win over Brighton yesterday, and after what was a good weekend, I think, in in, uh, general terms, uh, when it comes to some of the other results that happened, and, you know, the the game between Liverpool and Manchester United yesterday was the one everyone was waiting on to be the big fixture of the day, and it was, of course, as is often the case, a big bag of shit, Mm -hmm. Um, and Manchester City dropped points to Crystal Palace um, on Saturday, which was good news as well. So, good news all round. Yeah. I, I think, from an Arsenal perspective, I mean, you would have—I'm sure everyone would have had City and Liverpool as winning those two games. Mm. Um, particularly with United in the form they've been in, it was more a question of how many is it going to be. Uh, so, yeah, really, really good outcome. And, and Arsenal's fixture was not an easy one. You no. know, it, as much as Palace have been City's sort of bogey team at home, Brighton have really been ours. I think. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to sort of downplay their quality by describing them in that way, but they've given us a lot of problems at home. Obviously, there was a really painful result against them back in May. Yeah. So this was great. I loved it. 
Really, really loved this game. Loved this performance. All right. Well, you know, we've got plenty to delve into here, but just to make uh, people aware, it's 11... No, it's 11.07. The Champions League knockout draw is taking place uh, as we speak. So we will react to it when... Uh, when the draw is made. We're not watching because uh, Andrew Allen has just sent me a message saying, John Terry doing the draw, horrible. So we're not <laughs> I was just thinking, anything. if the draws just started now, obviously we record for about 90 minutes yeah. typically, there's a chance we might know the result <laughs> by the end of the podcast. Yes. I'm yes. on Copenhagen. I'm all in on Copenhagen. You're, okay. Okay, I, I'm I'm sort of open to any of the adventures that we've got because it's nice to be in there. But I prefer not to get PSG at this point, um, same, same, you know. Same, but we same. we will see, and like I said, we will react to this. So look, you said you loved this, you loved this game, and uh, I have to say, I think there was a, a lot to like about the way Arsenal played yesterday, in no small part because I think Brighton played pretty well I know they had a few little oopsies around the uh, penalty area when they were doing their playing out from the back but there were other times where they were very brave played good football tried to get it up the field you know played it around under pressure while we were chasing them around and you know we know what they're about we know what kind of um, threat they can be and I think you know we have to look at this we have to look at this um, Arsenal performance in the context of what Brighton are capable of doing, what they did defensively, how they've hurt us in the past before. And, you know, from the very start of this game, I think the intent was clear, wasn't it? As soon as the game kicked off, Arsenal pressed high up the pitch, um, you know, four players, five players going, and it set the tone for the performance that we were able to put in. Yeah, we went after them. And it's a brave thing to do against Brighton because... They can really play. I mean, I think they ended the game just about edging the possession, 51%. I think yeah. they completed more passes than Arsenal in the game. But a lot of that was in their own defensive third mm. because they couldn't progress past us. And you're absolutely right. We flew out the blocks. Could have scored in the first minute. Could have scored again, mm. you know, within the first five minutes. Um, and that would sort of become the story of the first half, really, how, how we conspired to not score. But I thought the intensity of our performance was brilliant. Um, I thought we really attacked the game. And Brighton, as you say, are an awkward, awkward team who are used to, as Deserby said afterwards, controlling games. He was like, you know, normally wherever they go, home or away, yeah. there's a decent chance they're in control of proceedings, but they weren't here. And as he put it, they suffered. And, and, and we put that suffering on them with... A, a really, really, really good performance. Yes, yeah, and and there there is a discussion I think to be had about attacking efficiency, right? Mikel Arteta spoke about that um, ahead of this game. He said you've got to be efficient, and we could see that that was a theme maybe last week against Aston Villa, where where chances weren't taken. Mm-hmm. And we had a number of questions about this, but I, I sort of want to get into it with you. Like, how do you? Look, the, it's clear that when you, you're looking to bounce back from defeat, right? You're playing against a team that have given you a hard time at home and you go in at halftime, it's nil-nil and you've taken 15 shots and there have been chances to score goals and you haven't scored those goals. To what extent are you able to balance that frustration, I think, that comes with that 
which is obvious frustration because, you know, 15 shots, no goals. Um, you need to be a little bit more efficient than that. But with what you've seen with your eyes and the way that the team has played and the way that they have in the final third caused Brighton all kinds of problems, I think better decision-making a couple of times, maybe being a little bit quicker a couple of times, just a, a little more control on, on one or two of the finishes a couple of times, and we're going in at halftime and it's 2-0, maybe 3-0, you know? So how do you balance that frustration of not scoring with, you know, I, I, I find it, I have to say, I, I find it more of a cause for optimism than concern when we play the way we do, even if we haven't scored the goals, because I think there's much more to worry about if you are a team that huffs and puffs and just can't make any chances and can't find a way behind a defense that's set up to try and stop you. Um, you know, keepers made some saves, they've made a lot of blocks, etc., etc. That, you know, for me, I, I would love to see a score, a couple of goals in that first half, of course. But I, it was a question for me of like, well, if you keep plugging away like this, you know, the, the goals will come. Yeah, my glass is also kind of half full about it. Whether that uh, would have been the case had, was it gross, you know, turned that ball just into the goal rather than the side netting. Mm. Oh, uh, Champions League draw, Porto. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we we that was always kind of uh, in the ether, wasn't it? Right. Porto. But listen, in, in football terms, I think that's a pretty decent draw yes. for us. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Um, it's maybe not the most exciting of the trips, but I gather Porto's quite a nice place. But, uh, yeah, football-wise, I think that's pretty good. Mm. Okay. We'll have some time to uh, ponder on that and maybe talk about it a little bit I more. I look forward to Copenhagen in the final. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, maybe a two-leg semi-affair. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll see. Um, so, yes, what was I saying? I, I, I mean, there have been times... You know, I know you spoke about it being a concern if your team is sort of ponderous and struggling to create chances. I, I think it would be unfair to kind of characterise Arsenal in that way at any point this season. But the attack and the fluency of the attack, the ability to create chances has been a talking point, right? Mm -hmm. for, for much of the season. And I think that this was our best attacking Premier League performance so far. I think I do think that, actually. When you consider the... The quality of the opposition, um, I think it's right up there. Mm. I know that we didn't necessarily get the end product that you might look for in that situation, but I think we were helped slightly by the fact that it was Brighton and the type of football they play. You know, they play like a big team. They play a bit like a Champions League team. Uh, and to a certain extent, that suits Arsenal. Um, but I really thought that we looked lively, inventive, creative. Maybe the finishing is not quite there. It's interesting. If you look back at last season, I think the stats kind of show that we ran pretty hot in terms of finishing, particularly in the first half of the campaign. Mm. You know, we overperformed in front of goal to a certain extent. We're not doing that right now. But I, I think that that sort of, like you, it gives me a bit of hope because it makes me think when we do turn a corner and we're at the point when the finishing really does hit form and, you know, we're taking chances you wouldn't ordinarily expect us to. Yeah. There ought to be a lot there for us because we're very good value for our wins at the present point in time. I think that's absolutely fair. And, you know, there were, there were moments where in that first half, I think we should have 
we should have scored. Um, yeah. That Martinelli chance, I know it's it maybe looks a little easier than it is, and I can see what he's trying to do with the finish there. Yeah, um, what a pass from Odegaard. Unbelievable. When you look at, the more you look at that pass, the better it gets. It, it always of, seems to, the ball almost seems to have backspin on it as it lands, yeah. you know. It, it's almost, he, he kills it as well as, he has the force on it to play it through the gap. And then he just manages, the ball just dies for Saka. It's incredible. There's this amazing clip of, um, I think it was from the Ryder Cup, actually, Rory McIlroy. Right. And he plays this chip shot from, I don't know, 30 yards, 40 yards like that. And the ball takes a bounce and you're going, oh, that's going to go miles past the hole. It takes another bounce just beyond the hole, maybe like a foot, and then just stops. And the Martin Odegaard pass kind of reminded me of that in the way that it sort of had the pace to get beyond, but then sort of span back into the path of Bakayo Saka. It's just an unbelievable pass from Odegaard. Saka laid it back, and, and then Martinelli, I think he was just trying to cushion it into the top corner, but just got a, a little bit too much on it. I think um, he thinks he has to lift it because I think he probably anticipates that defender sliding, to you know, to block. Mm. Um, I mean... I think the the way the ball comes back to Saka probably even deceives him. I think when Saka runs through, he's thinking, I'm going to the byline here, so I've got to pull it back. But actually, the the way the ball slows down into his path, there's not really any reason he can't take that on himself. Yeah. Um, he looks back for Martinelli and, yeah, he kind of skies it, doesn't he? But, but yeah, I, I was just sort of still mouth agape at that. Yeah. from Martin Odegaard. Um. Gabriel Jesus had some shots. Gabriel had a header on target. Odegaard curled a shot wide. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what else there was. There was a a, a very good uh, a very good chance for Martinelli to square the ball to Bakayo Saka um, when he ran through and and just kept going and the 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 angle got tightened a little bit. And I know uh, we we've spoken a bit about Martinelli. We spoke about him on last week's show, and I don't really want to do that whole thing again but we did have a slew of questions about Martinelli's decision making and and things like that what did you make of his performance yesterday because there was so much to like about it you know there was so much direct running there was so much uh, pace the way he stretched that Brighton defense um, mm -hmm. you know both fullbacks that he came up against the the guy who went nah I'm not having this I'm going off in the first half uh, I guess he's injured really uh, Veltman uh, and then yeah. Uh, they brought on uh, Hinshelwood, I think it was. But, you know, he he sort of terrorized those defenders. But again, once he got into the, the key positions, maybe the the decisions weren't quite right. Um, I think, you know, that's, in comparison I think to, that's bang on. Yeah. Yeah. I think decision-making. Um, and actually, I think when you're flying as a player, it's almost as if you're not really making decisions. Mm. It all happens quite automatically. And... Maybe, you know, just because, you know, the end product hasn't necessarily been there from this season, there is that bit of forethought. There is that hesitation, mm. uh, that slight overcomplication that can occur. But his threat is still so considerable. And I think he was such a part of what Arsenal were doing off the ball as well. Um, that again, I, I'm more inclined to be positive about his performance than negative. Yes. I, I know there was some frustration with him, particularly when it was still only 1-0 and you thought, is this game in the balance? Um, but I have to hope it will come for him because nine-tenths of it, he's doing so well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bakayo Saka as well. Um, 
Look, there's been a lot more end product from Bakayo Saka, but in this game, there were perhaps moments where he could have done better. I'm thinking yeah. there's one late in the first half where it falls to his right foot and he, he blasted it over the bar. Um, you know, if we're talking about attacking efficiency, it wasn't just Martinelli, but I do think there were probably clearer moments for for Martinelli to make a, an impact. Like there was that one I talked about where he, he ran through. If he just played the ball across, sometimes you see these like snapshots or a, a freeze frame. I put one on the blog today uh, and you go like, well, if he'd only played that pass between seven defenders, he would have found the guy <laughs> at the back post. But like Saka, w- there was nobody there. He just needed to roll it across uh, to Saka for for a tap in and he, he carried on and there was a moment maybe it was just before just after that where he beat the defender and he could have got the ball across but then cut back and tried to beat him again and, and lost it like I don't know that you have to beat the defender twice um, so maybe just there's something in in the way that he's feeling in terms of his own confidence or self-confidence I'm not sure mm. uh, maybe well, just well, trying to do a bit psychology, much isn't it but I think mm. you know maybe, maybe he's also looking at his own numbers and you know, there's a determination to kind of improve upon those and, and maybe that influences the choices he's making on the field. Mm. Uh, I, I sort of hesitate to say he's being selfish. I think that would be uh, wrong. I actually think he does a lot of unselfish work yes. for the team. And I think fundamentally the position that he plays, holding the width, is a very team-oriented role. Yeah, um, It reminds me a bit of Thierry Henry at Barcelona being told by Pep Guardiola you need to stand by the touchline until we get into the final third (laughs) then you can have a bit of freedom and I almost think you know Arteta kind of applies the same principle with Martinelli Um, so I've got great respect for him for for doing that Mm. for the team but yeah maybe once he gets there there's just that added thing of like I need to get a shot off here I need to start getting the goals who knows it's that paradox isn't it where we talk about choices and decisions but when a player is on top of their game they're not even making them, you know, yeah, it's that's all just true. happening. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I have to give him um, some credit as well for the uh, set-piece delivery. Uh, the corners he was putting in from that side were excellent all day um, and very dangerous and difficult for Brighton to defend against. Um, and we might talk about Brighton's defending uh, as well. But um, first half, you know, 15 shots to Arsenal. Um, Mikel Arteta is booked <laughs> for waving yes. at Gabriel Martinelli. Um not sure about that. Uh, what was Arteta signalling there? So I, I, I didn't have a great view of it. He he seemed to be just sort of waving at the ref because yeah. ben, ben White had been booked a few minutes previously for a similar sort of foul on Mitoma. I think it was Mitoma, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, that was a counter-attack foul, yes. wasn't it? It was like just killing a counter I, I think that's I think that's fair and I think it was a booking and I don't know was it like a bad pass we tried to take a quick free kick I think and the ref made us go back right and then Zinchenko took it and and I'm not sure if White was ready for the pass Mitoma intercepted and then he, he made the foul this was a little bit different because it was Bakayo Saka going back towards his own goal it wasn't a counter-attack but it was the same foul you know mm-hmm. so I think Arteta was waving at the referee to um to sort of look if that's call a, his attention yes, politely exactly to hand. exactly and this is just sort of part of how animated he gets on on the sideline it was quite funny you can, you can see when the referee comes over and gives him the yellow card like he he is trying so hard to keep his face expressionless yeah when you watch the replays of it it's really quite funny um, oh, wow. yeah i mean he, he was pretty animated at that moment i think the whole crowd were quite animated about that foul because 
it wasn't the first foul on Bukayo Saka. Surprise, surprise. Um, I think there'd been a number of mm. uh, challenges on him. And, and while I don't think any were a booking in their own right, from what I saw, listen, I was in the crowd, no benefit of replays. Uh, you know, there was that sort of cumulative frustration of like, how long is this going to go on before someone gets yellow? Yeah, I mean, I think the Milner one was potentially a yellow, you know? Right. Um, but certainly there were a couple of moments, weren't there? there was a Lalana went went into Odegaard early on, and there was a there were a few bits and bobs from Brighton where you know it could have added up to a yellow. But uh, yeah, um, I suppose the other thing about the uh, the first half, did you see the tiny shin pad? <laughs> no, who's tiny shin pad? I think it's the guy Hinshelwood. At one point, it, it, there was a tackle. Uh, I'm gonna send you something uh, here. Will I send it here or on WhatsApp, which is easy? Uh, uh, WhatsApp's best probably. All right. So <laughs> the referee goes to hand him his shin pad and it is the tiniest. It, I don't know what it is. I've never seen anything like it. Oh, wow. It's a really tiny little shin pad. It's, I mean, it's barely crisp sized. I know. Yeah. It's like a sort of Pringle or something. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know footballers, you know, are sometimes a bit... Shin pads have got smaller, certainly, over the years. I was going to ask you this. Have you noticed there was... I can't remember what game I was watching the other day. There was a game where... Hmm. I can't remember which player it was now. But basically, he wasn't... It didn't look like he was wearing any shin pads at all. And his socks were rolled pretty far down you know the way Grealish kind of has his socks down a bit yeah but even lower than that it didn't look like he was wearing shin pads at all um I, th- I think it might be in the laws that you I have think to. you so, have to so maybe this little teeny tiny thing um, this is the latest trend but like, uh, I think I would be. I think you know given some of the tackles that have gone in this weekend I think if I was a player I would I would want shin pads surely you can have reasonable shin pads that are light enough not to cause you any bother these days, you know? Sure. I'd be having my shins reinforced with titanium <laughs> or something. <laughs> Under the skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never be without them. Oh, my goodness, yeah. There's Man some... City got Copenhagen. Of course they bloody did. Oh, did of they? Of course they bloody did. Right. Um, let me just have a quick look and see what else is going on in, in that draw. Um, it is... RB Leipzig against Real Madrid, Copenhagen, Manchester City, Lazio, Bayern Munich, PSV, Borussia Dortmund. That's tasty. Uh, Inter, Atletico Madrid, PSG versus... Oh, I said it's PSV versus Dortmund, not PSG. Um, PSG versus Real Sociedad. Mm. Napoli, Barcelona, and Porto versus Arsenal. So, Where are Manchester United? Mm. Mm. Well, Newcastle? Yeah, not, mm. no sign. No sign. That's a bit strange. Um, so yeah, so I, halftime was very much the, the chat in the concourse was very much how the hell have we not scored? Yeah, I can imagine. I can and imagine. it's worth saying, you know, that there obviously are two sides to it, and Brighton didn't really have a sniff. Uh, you know, it was a very controlled performance in that respect. Uh, mm. We really kept them. You know, they're. I think they've scored in what was it, thirty-one consecutive games yeah. heading into this one. And I thought defensively we kept them really quiet. Well, well, that's true. You know, they they didn't really have a sniff. They didn't have a shot. Um, you know, when you consider who they've got in their team as well, 
you know, players who've been so effective and so exciting, you know, Karu Matoma, Evan Ferguson. Like when Evan Ferguson was taken off, I went, oh yeah, Evan Ferguson was playing. He didn't have a sniff. Did he he really didn't have a sniff. And I think, you know, we'll probably talk about a couple of players who, who stood out, but William Saliba and Gabriel at the back mm. just did not give him a sniff all game. Brighton tried to find him. And they would just follow him into midfield, take the ball, nick the ball, and, and we would go again. So I think you know we we ought to give the centre halves their um, their their flowers this morning because while they weren't necessarily tested too much from a defensive point of view, what they did to negate Brighton's attacking uh, uh, threat was really important. Yeah, I think their willingness to to press high as well. You know, they're quite brave, um, and I suppose the athleticism of their. Mm partners and teammates enables them to to take these kind of risks but they will push up very very high to win the ball they've got no qualms about coming you know 30 40 yards from the opposition goal to close down a center forward and, and nick the ball off him and it's very very difficult for a striker playing up against them physically they're so intimidating and so mm. good uh, i thought they were excellent yesterday and actually you know, when, when you're watching a game, certain players just catch your eye and, and there are obvious ones who no doubt we'll talk about. But I thought Gabriel had a really, really good game. Uh, and, and I just sort of was watching him thinking, obviously Saliba gets a lot of plaudits. And I think the fact he's so composed and so sort of uh, statue, uh, statuesque, is that what I mean? No, no, you don't mean, to, uh, you I don't mean, mean statuesque. What do I mean? You mean Saliba, like, so... Um... Uh, what do you mean? I know what you mean, but I'm trying to find the word. I understand completely what you're saying, that he is so... Um... I don't mean that he's still. No. Do you know what I mean? I mean that he's like uh, imposing and dignified in some way. Yes. Uh, you get the idea. Yes. Um, uh, the fact that he is who he is means he takes a lot of the focus and attention. But I was really struck by Gabrielle yesterday and sort of thought, you know, we are very, very lucky to have him as well. And I think it's that partnership that's mm. so, so crucial. Commanding? Would that be Commanding, good... yeah, that would work for that sure. That would work. That would work. But I think, you know, that partnership is so is so impressive. Um, and it is a big part of what this team is about now, you know, um, for, all the, for all the spotlight on others. Um, they really are brilliant and, and long may they last. So look, second half kicks off. You say the talk is, well, geez, we should have got a goal. Mm -hmm. Brighton made mistakes a couple of times early in that second half. And I, I'm I'm pretty sure that was not in Roberto De Zerbi's um, halftime team talk. There were a couple of mistakes playing out from the back. And that's what they do. You know, that's how they play. And that's the way that they're they're going to play. Maybe we should have made more after... I think it was the one, actually, the one that leads to the corner. Perhaps yeah. Odegaard could take that with his right foot rather than taking a touch. But from the corner, we get the goal. A lot of chat about, you know, Arsenal need a different number nine. They need a different kind of forward and, and all that. And you see that discussion happening a lot. But our number nine got us the goal that got us ahead in this game. And I think he was absolutely superb yesterday, Gabriel Jesus. Mm -hmm. We can talk or people can talk about how many goals he scores and should he score more. And I know that it's not a one-man team or anything like it, but uh, 
I think he is just so important to us when we're in that kind of mood and when we're playing that kind of football that I don't know that there is another center forward that would enable the fluency that we get in attack with him there who could also score us more goals. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and that's an interesting point. I mean, a lot of people at halftime, you know, I spoke about the conversations in the concourses. Number nine and centre forward was one of those conversations because mm. people are looking at a team and saying, well, we've got everything but the goal here. You know, if only we had an Erling Haaland or, or maybe even a, an Ivan Tony, someone to stick the ball in the net. Mm. But I, I'm with you. I, I think that Jesus is so integral to everything we do. But I think it's great that he scored the goal that he did yesterday. Like that's, it's kind of a free goal for a centre forward, you know? Like you stand on the back post, at a corner, the ball goes all the way through, you've got an open net and you score. Like Harry Kane made a career out of scoring those goals. Mm. I know he scored other goals as well, but he probably got 10 a season like that. Just wait on the back post on a yeah. set piece. And if Jesus can do those bits, those sort of, less glamorous, you know, slightly dirtier bits of centre-forward play. Um, well, often they're very glamorous. You know, you get all the credit for scoring the goal, but often they're a bit more straightforward. If he can do those, then we'll be in a really good position because this is a this is a poacher's goal, you know, and it's exactly what we needed. And uh, it breaks the deadlock and it's, it's the difference on the day, really. Yeah, it is. And, it's you know, it's... I said, I'm not going to say it's a difficult thing to do to just stand at the back post, but... When you look at the way the Arsenal players run across into the middle to take all those defenders with them, something went wrong for Brighton there. You know, something went wrong with Brighton's organisation because I think it's Havertz who, who drags a couple of defenders across with him. Jesus is there, gets flicked on, and Jesus, you know, heads in and it's 1-0. And I think the timing of that goal was particularly important as well. You know, after that first yeah. half where we were so dominant, if you go another 15, 20 minutes without scoring a goal, I do wonder if it might get just a little more... Uh, anxious, um, you know, on the, on the pitch and off the pitch as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But speaking of anxiety, you know, I know we're talking about Brighton's defending not being great there. I think Arsenal deserve credit as well for the way they kind of uh, fostered that anxiety in that back line. You know, yes, they made the mistake playing out from the back, but that's coming after 50 minutes of relentless pressure mm. from Arsenal's forwards, closing them down. And yes, obviously this comes from the corner immediately afterwards. So maybe that uh, skittishness and nervousness from playing out the back, it carries through into the set piece and yeah. Arsenal capitalise. I do think that you wear defences down over time. And I think what we saw from Brighton at the start of this half was a defence that, you know, had started to be a, a bit worn down. I think that's fair, but, you know, they, they still continue to defend really well. Uh, we had some moments, didn't we? I think Saka shot into the side netting. Um, yeah. What else was there? Uh, uh, well, there I was mean, an Odegaard ben White shot. had a header off that cleared off the line. Well, yeah, that came after a Martin Odegaard shot, which got Lewis Dunk right in the junk. The uh, ultimate cock block. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I thought his face was so funny, though, you know, because it was a classic of the like, oh, my God, I've been hitting the balls. This is so painful. It, it was very, very funny. I think uh, I was at that end and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, a great block. And he really, you know, he put his uh, a particular part of his body on the line for his team. 
I mean, that, brilliant, that brilliant defending, brilliant defending. Sure, um, but there could be no doubt as to where he got that when you see when you sure. see the replays. Right in Dunk's junk. <laughs> right in his junk. Um, <laughs> just looking at it here again, he's got two hands there. He actually played on pretty swiftly after that. I was like. I think if that was me, I would have been subbed off, like, <laughs> just rolling around on the touchline for about 20 minutes. Oh, we've all been there, in fairness. You know, get one of those on a cold day on a football pitch, and it's just not much fun at all, I have to say. Um, but his face was it was a picture. But look, to his in- immense credit, he got up, and it was like literally 60 seconds. Was it? After uh, that, where he headed the Ben White flick off the line. So Brilliant you know, clearance, that as well. Fair play. Uh, Fair fair play. play. And it looked a certain goal, you know, good delivery, the right header from Ben White. Mm. Um, And those are the moments where this game might have, you know, been a a much more comfortable scoreline. Sure. I mean, there were other moments as well. There was a great, uh, I think there's a really good save from Martin Odegaard. Yeah, Um, great save. The one where I think he, he thought about his finish last week against Emi Martinez and decided to go high and the keeper just put a big, hand out and, and saved it. It was a very good save. Poured it. Well, I think Odegaard basically scored that goal. Was it against Nottingham Forest last season where he just like punted it into the top corner? Mm. And uh, yeah, I thought the way the goalie sort of clawed it out was quite impressive. There was Havertz a, maybe yeah. might have scored with yeah. a header. There was a header for Kai Havertz. And then I think the next big thing that happened was Brighton's one and only chance with the uh, of the game yeah. when... Uh, we just made a couple of subs, I think. Trossard and Kedi had come on, Jesus and, and Martinelli off, and they got down um, the right-hand side. I know there's a, quite a bit of speculation or a, a discussion about Ben White, and maybe we'll save that for, for part two. But I think Saka looked a bit tired as well um, at that point, and, and Brighton were able to, for the first time, I think, really get in behind, put in a dangerous ball. Pascal Gross put it wide. I think he went with the wrong foot when you look at right. it again. Well, thank God. Yes. Um, thank goodness. Yeah, I mean, if you'd seen me the moment that hit the side netting, for a start from the other end of the North Bank, I think we all thought it was in. Oh. Uh, I looked like Lewis Dunk moments after he'd made that block, <laughs> basically, in that second. It was real. Um, yeah, it was It was not a good time to be me. But fortunately, I'm just watching it again. Yeah, he goes with the left. I mean, mm. he goes with the wrong side of his foot. Yeah, really. maybe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's very, 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 very close to being 1-1. Yes. And look, these are the fine margins that exist in in Premier League football. And I know that, you know, there'll be people there who will say, you know, by the time that chance was created, we should have been out of sight. And that's probably true. It is probably true. But, you know, unfortunately, football doesn't always work like that. And you have to ride your luck just a little bit. But, you know, from there... Can I make a point on that? Yeah. Which is just to say that, you know, Brighton could create one chance in the game. Mm. And let's say they had a 50% chance of scoring from it. Arsenal created, I don't know, half a dozen decent chances. Like on the balance of play, we would have been really unlucky if they had got a point here, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. But, you know, it's another one of those where we would probably be saying, you've got to take your chances and you paid the price. But, you know... But if you create more chances than the opposition, then sort of, even though football is quite random and finishing yeah, can be yeah. a bit of a lottery, you're probably going to come out on top. If they'd had two or three like those, 
then I'd be here saying, like, we got away with one there. But, yeah, yeah. I think if we'd been pegged back, it would have been a pretty cruel twist of fate. Although it can happen, you know. Of Look course. At Man City of the course. Weekend. Of course. You know, um, that is kind of how football works. Yep. Um, but, you know, we responded very well, I think, to that moment where Brighton, I think on Match of the Day, they, they said something like, just when Brighton were beginning to get going. And it was like, no, they weren't beginning to get going at all. They had one moment. And, you know, after that, we had the Declan Rice moment where he just drove down the left-hand side and, uh, yeah. you know, kept going and kept going and kept going and, and had a shot. Maybe he could have uh, squared it for uh, for Eddie and Keddie, but I don't blame him then for for uh, for having a go. And then, you know, a couple of minutes later, we get the second goal. I think this is quite a nice goal, actually. I, I enjoyed the way that Trossard kept the ball alive. Um mm-hmm. In midfield, like he he could have played a pass earlier, but he he kept possession and and then played it forward to Odegaard, Odegaard to Eddie, Eddie played it to Havertz, and Havertz slots home to make it two uh, nil and to to seal the game. And I think, um, well, you can tell me there must have been plenty of relief um, around you at that point because I do think you know one nil it gets a bit scary. You've got six minutes of injury time. Two nil it was always going to be the win, and I think. I won't say justice was done, um, but like if Arsenal won that game three or four nil, I don't think Brighton could have complained. No, not at all. Uh, and there was relief, but there was a lot of joy as well because I think people were really happy to see Kai Havertz have a kind of mm. big moment in the Premier League at home. Uh, I know he scored obviously against Lons, was it, in the Champions League? But this was a, a really significant, meaningful goal. And uh, and he's got a great song, and so any mm. excuse to sing it. Uh, it sounded like it was, re- re- you know, really doing the rounds in the in the Emirates in yesterday. a big way. Yeah, and uh, listen, I have to take my hat off. I was sceptical of whether or not the lyrics made sense in the early days. Uh, Kai Havertz scores again, but I you're all I know in now. Credit the foresight of the, <laughs> those lyricists. They knew what was coming. And I think it's quite a good finish, you know. It, I think it's kind of nuts. Like I think, I think, I, I think he manages to sort of put it through the keeper's legs. He goes under him, basically. Does it go between the keeper's body and his arm? Is that not where it goes? Rather than oh, is it legs? right? I don't I know. Think I mean, so. I think either so. way, I'm going to watch it here good again. Good pass, Medi and Ketia as well. To yes, give him his credit. Some real zip on that ball mm-hmm. into Havertz and took it in composed fashion. Thought he had another good all-round game. It's, it's just great to see him scoring goals. For, you know, that is really what... I know there's more to his role than that, but that's where we hoped to see the difference this season. Yeah. You know, a player in that role who can be a real attacking threat. So for him to get another one is great. And then from then on, it was kind of party atmosphere. You know, we are top of the league, yeah. etc. Yeah, I mean, uh, a win I think we absolutely deserved, to be honest. Could have been uh, another one for Smith-Rowe, who came on and mm. shot straight at the keeper. But, it, you know, this was a this was a, a win we really needed because we had to bounce back because of what happened against Villa. And it's also a win we needed because, you know, our record against Brighton is such that, you know, you kind of have to put that right. And what I... What I'd like to sort of focus on a little bit is, is a couple of players. Declan Rice, he's quite good, isn't he? Um, yeah, he's all right. He's all right. I mean, there was a lot of chatter pre-game that he was going to miss out because he'd been ill the night before. 
And he puts in a performance like that in a game like this, clearly not 100%, right? Couldn't be 100%. And he plays as, as well as that. I think when we talk about quality in players, we focus a lot on their technical ability, on their tactical awareness, all those kinds of things. But I think there is an element of character to the best players that, you know, it's hard to quantify, obviously, but you have to talk about it. And I think that determination to be available for the team and to go out and play as well as he did yesterday was just unbelievable. Yeah. This is going to sound absurd, but watching the game yesterday and watching his performance, I always felt like you shouldn't be allowed to buy players who are this good. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's midfield doping. Like, I think after so many years, I'm such a child of sort of the Wenger era and the stadium financing era that going out and buying the best midfielder in the league, a player of this quality, like it it almost feels sort of transgressive to me. Mm. Uh, but don't get me wrong, I'm thoroughly enjoying it as well. And um, so are the guys who were sat behind me yesterday. I hope that they won't mind me saying this. I hope I'm not outing them or, or, or kink shaming. But those guys, were, as the game wore on, the manner in which they um, discussed Declan Rice seems to have become <laughs> increasingly lusty. The erotic adventures of Declan Honestly, Rice. Honestly, like it was like at first they'd be like, oh, look at, look at the power. You know, and they're like, look at look at his look at his arms. Look at those thighs glistening. Look at those, look at those legs going. Look at those, look at the the muscles on the boy. By the end, these guys were fully in love with Declan Rice, <laughs> and uh, who can blame them? Who can blame I'm them? I'm sure indeed. there's many out there who felt the same. He is a true bulldozer of a footballer, isn't he? Mm, he's well. I think bulldozer is. Um doing him some disservice there. You know, that seems a bit destructive, if you like, a bulldozer. This this guy is just, you know, the way he drove down the left-hand side that time and he sort of took a touch and then just, you know, it could have been Pascal Gross that he went beyond and Gross kind of just throws his arms out and goes, ah, fuck. You know, he just couldn't keep up with him. And this was the 85th minute in a game where Declan Rice has been up all night with God knows what, you know, uh, feeling bad and on the toilet or whatever. Um, just sensational. He really is. I, I think we're running out of superlatives or running out of ways to describe him. Um, well, yeah, he's the clear front-runner for Footballer of the Year, I think. I think he's been the best player pretty much in the Premier League this season. Uh, every game... I imagine a kind of parallel universe where Man City sign him and the league is effectively a no contest. He 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 was outstanding yesterday. He's been outstanding since he came in. People talk about that idea of like men against boys, but when you're watching Declan Rice, it does feel like that at times. His capacity to sort of gain ground mm. on the opposition players. Again, I, I'm not trying to diminish the technical quality, which I think he's proven by now is absolutely there. But the physical dimension yeah. that he brings is extraordinary. It's like we're seeing a a new evolution of athlete. It's like you've taken a sort of modern footballer and dumped him back in the early nineties. You know what I mean? The way he's able to just sort of blast past people, and the fact he's doing this that against elite elite athletes, it's sort of astonishing. Yeah, the the 
the intelligence with which he reads the game, I think, is is unbelievable. Well, that's it. Yeah, that know? must be the explanation. You know, is he actually three or four yards quicker than these people? No, he's not. Probably but, not. No, no. But so, you know, he's a six foot two guy from Romford or whatever. But I think, yeah, mate, he's just absolutely killing it. And, yeah. and I, yeah, I, I so I feel so lucky. And like a tiny 1% guilty. <laughs> no guilt. We have him. No guilt whatsoever. Fuck them. Um, you know, we, we had to do a lot of work to get him in and we paid a lot of money for yeah. him. And that money has been, you know, some of the, some of the best money Arsenal have spent in recent times, uh, even if it was an extraordinarily high amount of money. I think it stacks up against, you know, any of the best signings that we've made. Speaking I've of got, work. I've got go one on. more Declan Rice thing, actually. Go on, yeah. I was thinking back yesterday to... This time last year, so it was about, yeah, 12 months ago, almost exactly. Um, maybe it was during the World Cup. And a bit of a peek behind the sort of journalism curtain. The first I heard of this kind of prospective transfer was that someone, uh, a good contact, said to me, you're going to be excited. And I said, why? And he said, Arsenal are pretty close to effectively securing the signing or securing an agreement from a world-class player. And I was like, that's all I've got. Mm. And I was like, who's that going to be? And anyway, you make more calls, you know, you do a bit of digging. At the time, I was like, Bellingham? Is it Bellingham, maybe? You ask around. Within a week or so, I managed to find out that he was Declan Rice. And I have to be completely honest and say that I think my first reaction was to go, oh, yeah, he's a good, he's a good player. Is he, is he world-class? And I feel like now, a year on... You idiot, I've James. Had, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it, I feel like I've had that question answered. <laughs> and I feel like I need to go back to that guy and say... Yeah. You were bang on. You were right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think probably something similar in terms of when I heard about it was towards the tail end of, of last year. And I remember being very excited by it because um, because of the sort of the statement of the signing, but also the kind mm. of player that he was. But he has so exceeded the expectations that I had for him. Um, I can't really put it into words, to be honest. I, I thought he would be good. I thought he would be good for us. I thought he was going to be the perfect player for our midfield. But I just have been so impressed with everything that he's done um, since he's arrived. And uh, he's just so, such uh, an exciting, ex exciting, maybe not quite it, but there's just so much to enjoy about the way he plays and what he brings to the team and the consistency with which he plays as well is is unreal because yeah has he had a bad game for us? I uh, don't, don't think so. Has he has he missed a game? Barely, barely. Mm. Touch wood. Touch you know. Pray to mm. all your gods. Um, yeah, and and I think as well like we speak about the mental side, like the level of application. I don't just mean in terms of hard work, but in terms of uh, learning and self improvement. Mm second to none. You know, Declan Rice was always a talented player, but we shouldn't forget he's also a player who's released from Chelsea at, at 14. 
it wasn't as if he was always destined to be, you know, great or the second coming. He's a player who's had to really work hard and focus and and learn about the game to get to where he's got. And that's why he came to Arsenal, because mm-hmm. he wanted to learn more. And I know that those first few weeks and months for him were a huge adaptation process. Suddenly he was getting all this information from Arteta, from his staff, about new game models, new ways of thinking about the game. And he has grasped it so quickly and so wholly. Uh, I think it's hugely, hugely impressive. Almost more impressive than someone who's just got God-given talent. You know, I, I have huge admiration and respect for him as a person and as a professional for how he is seeking to make the absolute best of the natural gifts that he's got. Yeah. Yeah. And as we said, to do it, you know, on a day when he probably wasn't feeling 100%, um, I think that just speaks volumes about, you know, what kind of character he has on top of all the fantastic technical qualities uh, that we've we've spoken about. Before we go into the break, can we just, uh, you know, give some flowers as well to Martin Odegaard, who was, I know we talked about that past, but I just think when you've got Odegaard in that kind of mood and when you've got, Gabriel Jesus in the kind of mood he was in it's sort of impossible not to play well you know that these guys are are so oil in the engine players if you want to call them that that they they sort of elevate the players around them and when you consider the talent level of some of those players um you know that's no mean feat is it because you know the Saka Martinelli um Havertz Declan Rice but but Odegaard yesterday was just he looks like he's back to his best and, you know, the few little uh, aches and strains and niggles that he was experiencing um, before that, that break he had uh, are hopefully a thing of the past. This looks more like the Martin Odegaard that we all um, know uh, and want to see perform on a, a weekly basis for Arsenal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And happy birthday to him as well. Oh, it was his birthday, was it? It was his birthday yesterday. How old yeah. is he? 20... And he celebrated with a, a brilliant performance, I thought. How old is yeah, he? How old is he? Uh, 25? 25, maybe? Let's have a look. Yeah. yeah, 25. Turn 25, exactly. The big quarter century. Um, shame he didn't get a goal, but there you go. Um, he was just... Still a young man. Still a very young he man. Still a very young man. All right. Well, look, will we, um, will we call it quits on part one? We should. I think so. I think I need to go and take a cold shower after all that Declan Rice chat. I'll all right. Myself quite het up. All right. Well, you go demoisten yourself, and uh, <laughs> we'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Would you like to go first? Oh, uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, let's go for this because we've just spoken about Declan Rice and Martin Odegaard, but this was a bit of a different take uh from paul jacobs paul says on twitter i was concerned after the final whistle whilst rice and odegaard were on their haunches looking absolutely knackered i know they were both man of the match or men of the match but it seemed more than just having emptied the tank with the christmas period coming am i wrong to worry um I think it's natural to worry when you see two of our best players looking absolutely knackered, but I do wonder if it was uh, anything more than just being absolutely jacked after a, you know, incredible performances from both of them. You know, we talked about what Odegaard created, but, you know, he created a lot of that with real hard work. He's the guy who leads our press most of the time. You know, the amount of sprints he does. I'd love to be able to get those stats actually you know how many sprints did he do in that game um so i i wouldn't worry about it from that perspective like i don't think they've done themselves any damage i think they just worked really really hard in a very very difficult game and at the end were wrecked and they'll go home and have a you know hopefully a day off and then come back and we've got a, a you know a full week before our next game so i wouldn't be too concerned about that no, I think that's interesting that we've got the full week off. You know, you think of this time of year and you're really accustomed to fixture congestion playing every few days. We've got six days now between Brighton and Liverpool. Uh, I think that's pretty healthy, actually. Um, and that is just an absolutely massive game, isn't it? I mean, that's the one thing I suppose we didn't really talk about in, in terms of the result is I think how important it was mm. ahead of Anfield, which 
looks massive, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's going to be a huge game. And I know that, that um, you know, Liverpool weren't particularly impressive yesterday against Manchester United, despite the fact they had, what, 35 shots or something like that? 35 attempts on goal? Is that right? Yeah, it was over 30, for it's sure. It's crazy, you know, but it was such a low-quality game. Um, we'll talk a bit more about that later on this afternoon over on Patreon in, in the 30. Um, but I would expect our game against Liverpool to be quite different. You know, Manchester United-Liverpool is so often just a terrible game of football, you know, for all the anticipation and the rivalry between the two teams and the history and all the rest. It's just, like, bad a lot of the time. Mm. One of the most underwhelming games of the season, more often yeah. than not. I'd agree with you. But I, I don't expect that to be the case next weekend. I think it's going to be a very, very intense game. But, you know, we have set ourselves up pretty well for it. You know, going back to the top, playing as well as we did against Brighton. And, uh, you know, I think every aspect, every facet of our team is going to be tested next weekend against sure. Liverpool. You know, defensively. Um, the attack, we're going to have to be more efficient in attack if we go to Liverpool because I don't think we're going to get 26 chances or 26 attempts on goal like we did yesterday. So um, I'm sure it's something they'll focus on on during the week. Um, There's a lot on the line. The mm. Christmases of millions of Arsenal fans are at stake. What about you know? this, though, from MC Godlike? I think that's what he's... Uh, I've really got to get new glasses. Yeah, MC Godlike. He says, am I alone in hoping we aren't top at Christmas? It seems to put a weird pressure on the season. I think you're probably alone there. I think you're alone, mate. Yeah, because that would mean... If you go to Anfield and get battered, Christmas is cancelled in my house. (laughs) I'll be there during my On the Whistle video, setting fire to the presents. What did we do for my first ever Christmas, Dad? Well, I... I I destroyed the tree. I destroyed... I shredded the, the tree... And uh, burnt all the presents. And I uh, went to a local orphanage and I just walked in the door and said, there's no such thing as Santa. <laughs> but that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that is a risk. So for that reason alone. Yeah, I want to. I, I think Top of Christmas, um, well, it's a bit, it's not like last season where Top of Christmas gave you sort of a month or so to bask in it, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Because the World Cup, um, this is going to be for potentially four days until we play on the 28th. Yeah. No Boxing Day game for Arsenal this year, which does feel a bit weird. Yeah, it does. It um, does. This is proper Christmas this time. Yeah. You know? So I, I think it matters. I think it matters hugely in terms of the title race that we get a result. There. Mm. You know, I know that I was looking at Liverpool's games, actually, and they've got a pretty tricky run coming up. Um, which started with with Man United. Uh, let me see if I can dig it out. So they're seven. They've got a run of seven league games, which include matches against United, Arsenal, Newcastle, Chelsea, hmm. and Arsenal again away from home. So those are all fixtures in this seven game Premier League run. And, and for quite a lot of that, they'll be without Mohamed Salah, who will be at uh, Af- oh, Afcon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a crunch period for them um and they have to come to the emirates twice in the space of a month pretty much once for the fa cup and once in the league at the start of february but if we could go to anfield and get something mm. oh i think it really sort of consolidate our 
position. I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think we're good enough. We're absolutely good enough. Oh, for sure. For sure, you know. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. No, no, no. I mean, it's 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 going to be a test, but then every game is is a test. I think the Brighton game was a, an interesting test as well. You know, how do you respond to being beaten away from home? I think the response was excellent, and I think the response to um, losing to Newcastle was excellent. So those are, you know, nobody likes losing, nobody likes dropping points, but how do you react? You know, the conversation we used to have about, Arteta's Arsenal, you lose three and then mm. then we get it back. Then you lose two in a row and you get, you get it back. Maybe now we're seeing the evolution of that. You know, you're losing one. Well, yeah, I think so. And, and actually on the subject of that kind of consistency, um, I saw a question on the Discord from uh, Gautam Batia who said, Goodly morning, gents. Is this the first time since 03-04 and 04-05 that we've had two successive title charges two seasons in a row? I guess so. I guess so. I mean, my memory were may we, be failing me here. Oh four, oh five. 4 were we... I don't... Did Chelsea not win that by a fucking mile? Yeah. In that I, season? Perhaps so. Let me Perhaps go back. So. I think they had, they had like 90-odd points that year. I mean, we might have finished second. Let's have a look. Uh, we did finish second, but 12 points behind yeah. Chelsea, uh, who finished with 95 points. We finished with 83 points. Yeah, we had a good season, 83 points. You know, it won 25 games, but we weren't particularly close to Chelsea. Um, no. Yeah, that was a record at the time, the 95 points that they won the league with. But yeah, I do think that is a, a good point. You know, I think mm. we're used to periods where, you know, certainly in the sort of latter half of Wenger's reign, there'd be the odd season where we might find ourselves in the title hunt, but we were never really able to, I just use the word, but consolidate our position and, and go again. Uh, it certainly felt that way anyway. And yeah. the fact that we've done so in successive seasons under Arteta, I think is testament to what he's building being somewhat more sustainable. Sure, sure. Uh, here's one from Chris Godfrey, who's at Chris P. Godfrey, Chris P. J. Godfrey uh, on Twitter. He says, how worried should we be about Ben White's form? With Matoma, he probably had the hardest defensive gig of the day. But even so, I don't think he gave the best account of himself, judging by his own very high standards. He's had an underwhelming few weeks. Yeah. Well, listen, I was in the stadium and I'll be completely honest and say it's not always the best kind of tactical viewpoint to be in the corner behind the goal. Uh, and I didn't come away from the game overly concerned about Ben White, but I'm very open to the idea that I missed something there. So what did you see through the TV pictures? I saw Mitoma go past him once. Maybe I'm misremembering myself you know to be and he's one of the best dribblers in the league we yes say. i thought mitoma was pretty quiet all things considered you know how good he is mentioned ferguson mentioned mitoma in the first half you know this is a guy who's skin defenses time and time again i don't think he did that yesterday i will admit that because of the ludicrous uh, rules around tv coverage i had to watch on a stream and it wasn't always the best stream in that, you know, you're having to go back and restart it or find a new one. And, you know, it's complete 
bollocks, isn't it? That in nearly 2024, we're having to scratch around on the internet to try and find, you know, a game of football that we want to watch when yeah. basically everybody else in the world can can watch these games and watch every game. It's crazy that um, in the UK and in Ireland, we have to, you know, we have to become pirates um, essentially to, to, to watch our football team. So maybe there's something I missed in, in little pockets of coverage that I didn't get. But beyond that moment where uh, Matoma went past him to create the chance for Pascal Gross, I thought Ben White did fine, to be honest. Um, maybe I, I, he's I not that quite his maybe not at yeah. the level that it, it was last season. Um, and I think if Takira Tomiyasu was fit, you know, I looked at starting 11 yesterday, I was like, is this... Arteta's sort of, you know, first choice. Is this our best 11, as we're always asked about? Mm. And I was like, it's got to be pretty close. I think the only debate, really, for me at this stage would be about the the right-back uh, position and or, or, let's say, the full-back position. You know, maybe Tommy Asu yeah. would be in one of those full-back slots. But I think it's a pretty close fight between, between those three for those two places. So... Yeah, I think Ben White's form has dipped a little bit. I think he's in a difficult position at the moment where he's having to play a lot of games, a lot of minutes, and he's going to have to play a lot of minutes moving forward. Um, so maybe a bit of fatigue is inevitable, but by and large, I thought he did all right up against Matomi yesterday. I, as I say, it wasn't something I came out of the match worried about. No, me neither. Me neither. Uh, what about this? Uh, French Gooner says, Goodly morning, guys. What do you think of Emil Smith-Rowe's latest short cameos? To me, during these few minutes, he seemed different than all his previous comebacks. Physically better, but also has played more vertically, more threatening with the ball and just felt more confident. Maybe. I need to see a bit more, you know. Yeah. Um, he really hasn't had too many minutes. He did have that chance, which we referenced in the first half. And... Um, you know, maybe that's one he should score. I don't know if he should score. It's a good save again, to be honest. It's one of those that could have squirmed under the goalkeeper. And I, I think the positive aspect of that is that he was in the the position he was in to, I think it was Trossard. Declan Rice did really well. He crossed it. Trossard nodded, nodded it back. And mm. Smith Rowe was there to kind of um, get a shot on target. It was another one of those moments where Rice just came and took the ball off the opposition, basically, yeah. as I recall. And again, it was really like, that could have been injury time, which again, goes to everything that we were talking about with Declan Rice. You know, I I, I honestly can't say I need to see more of Emil Smith-Rowe since he's uh, come back from um, the injury. And, and uh, I'm hopeful, I'm positive. We talked about him last week, didn't we? And you know, my belief that if he if he was a fully fit Emil Smith Rowe is somebody who will serve us really well over the course of the rest of this season but the sample size in terms of what he's been uh, what he's been given uh, with minutes in the, in the last couple of weeks is just too small like I'm hopeful I'm hopeful but I can't say for sure that I've noticed anything markedly different uh, at this point I have uh noticed a sort of directness and athleticism and I think he has that knack doesn't he of sort of being able to come off the bench and be dangerous yeah um and already in this sort of brief comeback there have been a couple of moments that might have been goals um which I'm encouraged by I'm encouraged by because I think we need that sort of impact player from the substitutes bench but it's such early days that I'm still a bit tentative around it but yeah I'm pleased to see him back on the bench and 
just at least get some minutes in his body. And yeah. Let's hope he can sustain it and keep it going. You know, I, you always just fear what's the next piece of bad news around the corner with Emil. And I, I really hope that 2024 is a, is a really productive, positive year for him. Mm. Uh, Gray, who's at Wiggle That on Twitter, says, is Saliba the best passer we've ever had at centre-back? I thought he made some really eye-catching passes yesterday. If he's not, who is? And just before we do that, um, let me see if I can find this again. I was taken uh, aback by the Arsenal passing statistics at halftime in this game. Here are outfield players' pass completion percentage. Ben White, 95. Gabriel, 96. Saliba, 98%. Zinchenko, 92%. Havertz, 100%. Odegaard, 92%. Declan Rice, 95%. Saka, 90%. Jesus, 100%. And Gabriel Martinelli, 93%. And when you consider, you know, some of the forward players often, and in particular wide players, you know, they can often have slightly lower pass uh, completion yeah. percentages because they're trying more risky passes. That, that was, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Those were the halftime stats. I didn't look at the uh, full-time ones, but there you go. That is amazing. And, and uh, you know, a big focus of pre-season apparently uh, was kind of slightly shifting the balance of the team to make Saliba the guy, like the mm. central point who everything is played out through. Um, and I think that's wise when you see his quality on the ball. Is he the best we've ever had? Um, very possibly. I mean, it's partly an evolution of the role, you know. And the I, game. I don't think the, and the yeah, game itself, yeah. The demands on centre-halves were very different. You know, so Campbell was not of this kind of technical calibre, um, but he wasn't required to be. And actually, you know, Colo Torre, when he came into the team, bear in mind, he came in as a guy who played left wing, up front, centre field, right back for Arsene. When he came in as a centre-back, apart from his acceleration and power, what he really brought was a high level of technical quality and everything played out through him, you know, his passing, his ability to carry the ball forwards. And that was quite uh, advanced, really, for that era. Um, so I think in his time, mm. he was very good. Um, but yeah, I think Saliba's got to be right up there. I, I honestly... I'm struggling to think of anyone. Yeah, better. same, same. I mean, look, we've had some very accomplished defenders, and you know, sometimes players are are underrated, um, you know, based on what they do off the ball. Um, but I think in the modern age, there is nobody quite like William Saliba, who finished the game with 98.5 percent pass accuracy from 65 passes wow. against a team like Brighton. Yeah, that says something. It's really exceptional. Um, what about this question? So uh, it's about our title credentials, I guess. Mm -hmm. So Chargui says, Goodly morning, gents. Now reaching halfway point in the season. What has been the most valuable improvement of Arsenal compared to last season, in your opinion? Is it A, Declan Rice, <laughs> B, quality depth, C, the collective ability to control games, or D, the more composed 
but still capable of scoring late winners' mindset. And then he says, these are evidently intertwined, but which one will be more significant in helping us achieve our goals in Europe? It's mm. a good question. Um... Hmm. Quality. Uh, yeah, for depth. me, I think it's the collective ability to control games. Uh, yeah, it's it's sort of that, or the the depth that we have. Because look, we're playing games without last season starting uh, DM Thomas yeah. Party. We don't have, um, haven't had Emil Smith Rowe for most of the season. Uh, Gabriel Jesus, you know, was in and out at the start. Um, yeah, Tommy Asu as well. No, Tommy Asu. Uh, there was no uh, Gabriel at the start of the season as well. And I think and Timber. To no Jury and Timber, exactly. So, you know, I think the, the depth thing has allowed us to, to cope better with absences. But obviously then that is intertwined with the way that we are deliberately trying to play football these days, it is different. Arteta said that, didn't he, last week or, or whatever. It's got to be different. You know, we we want to improve, so it's got to be different. And I think there is a change in the way that we in the way that we are playing. But I think what what ultimately he wants to do is like, would you say yesterday was a very controlled performance from Arsenal? Yeah, right. I, I would too. But the discussion maybe six weeks ago was the control has come at the cost of attacking efficiency yeah. or fluency, right? So I think the plan is to have the control, but also do what we did yesterday to Brighton, but be more efficient and score three or four or maybe five goals in a game. I think that's the plan. I don't think it was necessarily sacrificing uh, attacking um, fluency or, or, or chance creation. I think it was a case of betting in this this idea of control and how we need to play and then using that as a platform to attack. And yes, perhaps and yesterday... Period, we were without Gabriel Jesus, who I do think is kind of a transformative. Yes. And and Martin Odegaard not quite at his best form as, as we've already discussed. So yeah. um, I, I think it's exciting, to be honest. I think it's really exciting to be able to do what we did yesterday and look, yes, we should have scored more, but to to sort of take Brighton apart in that way, you know, to make them defend in the last ditch manner with which they did um, effectively at times. And, you know, you can uh, talk about our own profligacy in, in certain moments, but I think it's exciting to, to be perfectly honest. I think it's interesting. Arteta, you know, he doesn't really use the word control. He, he wants to use the word dominance. Um, mm. Someone asked him a week or two ago about, control is that is that sort of the difference or is that what you're aspiring to and he said no i want to dominate in all aspects of the game i i suspect he feels that control he, he's a quite big on semantics arteta and i suspect he feels maybe that's a bit passive you know yeah i think dominance fits more with uh his vision of his team and his football um but it's interesting, you know, while today we have absolutely waxed lyrical about some of the attacking play and some of the stuff we did going forward, and I think we're absolutely right to do that, I can't help but also look at the other side of it and think a team with all Brighton's attacking quality, the football they play, 
the record of scoring in consecutive games for the most part of a season's worth of football. And we limited them to effectively one chance mm. in the game. And that, for me, at this point, is actually the story of our season. You know, the, the way in which we have kind of eliminated jeopardy, reduced the sense of risk within games and exert that control. I, you know, that for me is the dramatic mm. shift in how we play. And the stuff that happens on top of that, you know, in the final third is necessary and exciting and brilliant. But I've got a feeling that it's what we're doing in our own half or not in our own half. Well, that's it. It's know, not in our own half. It's keeping about... Keeping people away from our own half. Exactly. Exactly. That will, that will be the difference. And I've said, I think Arsenal will win something this year, and, and I still think that. All right. Well, I hope you're right. Um, I have a question here from Pritch on the Discord. And he said, uh, Arteta... Uh, oh, hang on. He said... Um, to what, what did he say? Come on, man. I'm, I'm trying. He said, to what extent do you think Arteta's apparent reluctance to throw youngsters in is down to the tactical complexity of his system? He mentioned today that it's taken until now for Kai Havertz and Declan Rice to start to understand fully what he wants. These are top-level pros. It's taken them months. Lacazette did an interview in France this week and mentioned how Arteta is the most tactically advanced manager he's worked with, arguably at a time when we were less sophisticated as a team. Surely chucking a 17-year-old into this side with very specific roles, periodization and rotation is a massive ask. He said, I might be right, might be wrong. But I can say for sure that I'm uh, much more intelligent uh, than I am, uh, than I was at 17. Is the challenge mental rather than physical or technical? Well, it's a good point. We spoke about Declan Rice and, you know, I, I explained how he was almost overwhelmed by the sort of wealth of detail and instructions when he arrived at Arsenal. And he came from a, a modern Premier League club in West Ham who have analysts and coaching staff. But I think arriving at Arsenal and working for Arteta, it is another level. And multiple players have experienced that and described their almost awe at the level of detail at times. And some grasp it better than others and some grasp it quicker than others. I think it's no coincidence, for example, that Leandro Trossard walked into Arsenal um and basically took to it like a duck to water because he was coming out of a, a club in Brighton who have a very sophisticated game model. Yeah. Uh, and he's obviously an intelligent footballer who could grasp that. Now, to bring it round to the young players, it, I think it's an interesting point. What I suppose the counterpoint would be to say, if you've got a properly aligned, joined up club, then in theory those young players should be sort of being educated in the principles of play from an early age. So it should be, by the time they reach the first team, kind of part of their education, almost second nature. Um, that is interesting, though, isn't it? Because, you know, there, there are clubs where there is a philosophy that runs right through the club from, you know, start to finish, and this mm. is how we play. As a club, this is how we play. I mean, to what extent do you think Arteta's... Um, technical approach to the game is replicated below him and by below him I mean at sort of underage levels 
great question. And to be honest, it would be better to ask someone like Art or someone who regularly watches the academy sides because they would tell you that you know the degree to which it's in place. I would suggest, based on what I've seen, I've watched a couple of under 19s games, mainly the sort of Champions League games this season. I was just there is still quite a gap um, in terms of the sort of identity of the teams and. It's that problem of you've got coaches who, yes, they're part of a system, but they also want to achieve results in their own right with the players they've got available to them. So there's that tension always between player development and, you know, youth team success. You know, do you pay the formation or the style that's going to win you the FA Youth Cup or the Mm. one that's going to produce uh, best players for the first team? And what's best for your career as a young manager? Um uh, the main thing I would say is that Arteta's not been at Arsenal that long, really, in real terms. So I think it's, what, four years now. It takes time for these principles to be properly established and filtered down and for the likes of Arteta, Edu, Mertzaka to come to a really kind of aligned vision on how the academy sides need to play and what constitutes an Arsenal player. We've got to be getting there now. But, um, yeah, maybe it's not quite perfect. I have to be honest and say, I don't know. But it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a kind of top-down model, but it must take some time to yeah. truly put it all in place. I do wonder how replicable it is, you know, yeah. further down, because the, the specificity with which Arteta sets up his team and, and all the rest of it, you know, there's got to be obviously a a measure of joined up thinking we know that that's the case because of the way the academy is set up with per mertesacker and what mertesacker is doing is is trying to prepare players who are ready to make the step up but i suppose it's probably about getting players integrated into first team training we've seen you know young players train with the first team and get a little bit of Skelly on the bench yesterday. Yeah. Well, I mean, that might've been, you know, uh, an injury thing as much as anything. Um, I've got a question about that next, but um, yeah, I mean, I think there is a, there is just such a big gap between playing youth football and playing first team football. And there's a huge gap between youth football and playing first team football for a team that is as good as Arsenal right now and one that is going to challenge for the title. Yeah, and you can't replicate the stakes. You just can't replicate. You can't replicate the environment. It's really hard and you don't know how different personalities will react to that spotlight and that pressure. And that's a big part of it. You know, like the question said, if you think about who you were at 17, Mm. who you are... 25 for example vastly different in terms of how you'll deal with different scenarios and different situations um it's a really it's an interesting debate though this one about Arteta and and young players and I I suspect it will rumble on because I don't think it's going to get any easier for them to get their opportunities no as we often say it's it's like the cream has got to rise to the top you know and and there's also an element of good fortune sometimes in how and when a player can um 
can get a, an opportunity in a first team, not just for a game or a um, you know 15-minute cameo here and there, but on a regular basis, which is kind of what you need to establish yourself as somebody who's part of a first-team squad, you know? Um, you know? You know, people say, we must go out and buy this player, that player, we've got to buy this player and that player, but at the same time say, we have to bring through young players as well. You do that then. <laughs> fucking, you see how fucking easy it is. Yeah, you know, um, these are the demands on on managers. They're external, of course, and I'm sure the decisions they make are, are, you know, based on all the information, all the analysis that they have based on what the squad needs. But it is one of those you know, weird things. Like you, you've got to go out and get another striker, but we also have to give this 16 year old a chance. And I don't yeah. don't quite know how that that works. Um, and to be fair, was, I don't know when it was now, maybe a year or so ago, that Edu was a po- appointed sporting director rather than technical director. And part of the purpose of that was to create this bridge, right, between mm. academy and first team. Because technical director was technically <laughs> a first team role, working alongside Arteta and the management. A sporting director, he's got a broader remit. And one of the reasons for that was to kind of create great, better uh, links between women's side and the men's yeah. side, the, the academy and the senior side. So who knows? But maybe, hopefully, that work is happening in the background. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask another one here? Because yeah, we do, you mentioned you had a question. We do have some questions about uh, strikers and January and all that kind of stuff. Um Fagan on the Discord says, is the Dominic Solanke rumour the most underwhelming striker link since Dean Sturridge was mooted as an Anelka replacement? Perhaps a little <laughs> harsh on uh, Dominic Solanke. He's there. having a great season, he to is. be fair. I wouldn't be my first choice, don't get me no, wrong, but he's playing neither. very, very well. Um, but Decky Healy on Twitter, who's at Ecky Healy, says so many rumours uh, are being linked with various strikers, Solanke, uh, Ozzyman, Tony, Watkins, just waiting for the inevitable Calvert-Lewin rumours, but can you rank which is the more important position we need right now? Centre-back, central midfield, uh, he says CDM, so a defensive midfielder, uh, and striker. If you had to rank those right now, what, what, what way would you do it? Well, this is why January is always such an interesting window, because I think the priorities are so informed by what's happening on the pitch and the injuries rather more so than kind of the broader picture of the squad. Like I think if everyone was fit and available in the Arsenal squad, you'd give a different answer. You'd say, Oh, could do with mm. a forward maybe. But I think when you look at how thin we are in certain areas of the pitch and they are further back, you know, I'm thinking of the defense and maybe the defense in midfield think those take precedent almost at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, so I would say... Hmm, I, listen, if I was answering right now, bear in mind I don't know how significant Jorginho's injury is. Uh, I think I would go... I think I would maybe go defensive midfield, you know. I think I would too. You, you talked about Miles Lewis-Skelly being on the bench yesterday. Yeah. Well, that's because Declan Rice is the only central midfielder that we have fit, right? Because Jorginho's got a foot injury. I don't know how long it's going to be. El Neni's got 
a hamstring injury. I don't know how long it's going to be. And look, he's a great guy, but you know, I, I think um, I think he's somebody that we you know will be moving on from uh, sooner rather than later, given his contract status and, and all the rest of it. Partey, no idea if and when he's going to be back. Yeah. how long he'll be back if he does come back, and then he's going to be off uh, at AFCON as well. So um, I'm sort of ready to to move on from Thomas Partey, to be perfectly honest. And I I have real worries about the, the center of midfield. Um, so I think, as you said, if you're, if you're asking me right now, I think striker would be like last on the list. Yeah, for me, that's way down the list right now. You know, of the three, that would be last... Central midfield, probably first, and then and then centre back, um, because you know we do have um, we do have uh, Tommy Asu hopefully coming back. I know he's going to Asian Cup as well, which is a bit of a you know a bit of a blow, all right. But I mean, I've seen talk about uh, Italian clubs being interested in Kivior. I just can't see how that's in any way possible in January, given the the state of uh, of the squad right now. But totally, I think even Cedric. You know, I think they'll be loath to let him go, um, which tells you, I think, how thin we are. Yeah. Well, there uh, you go. So, and yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll even throw this in the mix. I, I would, you know, in a sort of fancy world where we're making three or four signings, uh, I would prioritise a wide player over a centre forward. So would I. So, centre forward for me, while I completely accept it's on the shopping list. And I think it is probably the next kind of big step in terms of squad evolution. I think in terms of depth and immediacy and getting through this season, I think it's way down the list. Does a centre forward, though, allow you maybe to to use Gabriel Jesus as the wide player? True, true, true. But then, maybe. you know... I think Arteta, as, he, as we sort of said earlier, he thinks in terms of seasons... And I think the style of play that we have got for this season is built partly around Jesus up front. Mm. He might revise that in the summer. He might buy a pure number nine and turn Jesus into a winger or relegate into the bench or so. You know, we don't know. But I think when he thinks about 23 24 this year, I think this is the model of play. And I don't think he'll disrupt that. In a big way, yeah. Halfway through the that's season. really interesting, though. You know that he thinks in seasons that this is there's got to be as a consistency, if you like. Um, I guess if it doesn't work, you know, if you're thinking in seasons and something isn't working, maybe you get to January and say, okay, sure. we need to pivot in a different direction. But when well, it is working, so, but we're, we're top of the league. Yeah. Yes, I had noticed that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm enjoying, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Um, Listen, I, I've got this quick one. I, I'm okay. sure you'll do it on, in more detail on the 30, but I couldn't resist. Speckled Jim said, who won the dickhead world title, Martinez or Mope? <laughs> have you seen this? Yes. It was a, a lot of fun, actually, I have to say. <laughs> a lot of fun. I can't believe that Emmy Martinez did not get booked. No. What, for dragging Mope up by his collar? Well, first for not... Well, Mope got, Mope got booked for for leaving the shoulder on Martinez, right? Did he? When, he did but get, when Martinez went to ground very Yeah, easy. exactly. When he went down like a sack of spuds. And um, Martinez 
pushed Mope. He gave him a little, like, it was exaggerated, of course, from Mope. But he didn't get booked for that, nor did he get booked for, like, literally trying to drag him off the ground. You could see Mope just sort of dead waiting. That was the funniest part, just sort of dead weight. Um, how much did you roll your eyes to heaven when, was it Kamara got sent off? Yeah. And they went, oh, you can't hand. raise your hands. That's a red card. I know. I was like, oh, God. Do we have to? Uh, but who won? I think it's um, I think it's a draw, and I think we need to, to set the two of them on each other again. Maybe, I don't know, put them in an octagon, give them both a chainsaw and a dose of PCP, and see who comes out on top. Yeah. I mean, I think in an octagon... I'd have good money on Amy Martinez potentially killing Neil Mope. So, uh, yeah, sure, let's do it. Let's do it. Seems like a good one to me. Yeah. Um, right, final one from me. Oh, I uh, here it is, yeah. Uh, the other Andy Murray, so not the, the famous Andy Murray. I guess there's Gross one more. player, yeah. He says, uh, just notice that Kai Havertz tops the charts for Arsenal's yellow cards. Is he the new Granite Xhaka? Or the successor to Mikel Arteta, who's racking up a few. Yeah, four each. Arteta four has more each. has more bookings than uh, every other Arsenal player apart from Kai Havertz. Is he on a ban? Mm. If he gets one more, or is he over? the How many do you have now? to go now? Because in for players, it's like five and then ten. So if it's for a manager, I presume it's three and six. Oh, sorry, but I mean for um, Havertz. Havertz. Yeah, one more. One more. How many games has he got to go? He's got to get to the halfway point before mm. that's, uh, which would be 19 games. A couple more. I mean, look, it's good we've got him for Anfield. Um, yeah, I guess he is the new Granite Shaka. I guess he is after all. After all that. It has come to pass. It has come to pass. Low and low, it has come to pass that <laughs> Kai Havertz became the new Granite Shack. Uh, yeah, I think it is the halfway point, isn't it, where you, um, your threshold is increased. So, yeah. Um, Listen, he's, he's, he's taken over the the hard work, the yellow cards, the being the subject of intense debate. Mm-hmm. Now some of the goal scoring from last season. He's got a better uh, song. He's got a better song. Yeah. He's got a better That's the song. real improvement we've paid for. All right. Well, look, let's leave it there. Let's get this podcast out to everybody. Um, as ever, thank you very much indeed for listening. We will have a special bonus Christmas Eve edition of the Arsecast Extra for you because we are playing Liverpool on the 23rd. We will do something for you um, on Christmas Eve. That's how dedicated we are. Um, to uh, sharing the joy of being top at Christmas with you guys. Um, yeah. So please do Unless we lose, in which case it won't be Christmas Eve because I'll have cancelled Christmas. Yeah, you'll be outside that orphanage just yeah. telling the kids <laughs> that there's no such thing as Santa. All right, well, we'll have more for you during the week, of course, as well. We'll have the 30 for you over on Patreon later this afternoon discussing all the weekend's Premier League action. Plenty to get into there. Patreon.com forward slash arseblog. For now, take it easy, folks, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.